the people that he has written his letter to know certain things. Um, John, uh, if you didn't know, uh, this is the same John that wrote one of the Gospels, good friend of Jesus, eyewitness to his life, one of his best friends, one of his inner three. And he wants the recipients of this letter, uh, though we don't know who the like original audience is in terms of like where they lived, uh, we do know that he uh, is aware that in some way his recipients don't know the truth uh, or they, they don't know it totally. They're not sure of it. Uh, the letter starts with a testimony of what the apostle knows as one who has seen, heard, and touched Jesus. Um, but it ends with a refrain about knowledge in a different sense, uh, that he expects, by the end of his letter, he wants all of his recipients to know a few things. Um, he actually repeats four times in eight verses this expectation that they know, that they know certain things. And um, one of the things we can assume about his audience is that they don't know what they ought to know. And some, on some level, uh, he spent four and a half chapters trying to convince them of a thing, and we get to the end, uh, and he want, he's finally telling them what he hopes they have arrived, what conclusions he hopes they've arrived at. Um, and so while it might seem weird uh, to begin a, like, a large group series for the fall like at the end of a letter, uh, that's actually the perfect place to like kind of open up what First John is about because it's kind of his summary conclusions. It's kind of what he's been building towards. It's a good preview of all the things that actually come before it. Um, so that's why we're going to start by cheating just a little bit in, our, in terms of Bible reading and uh, start in chapter 5. So, uh, yeah, because we want to start with his conclusions and what we get by the end. So as we read it, uh, it's my hope uh, that you'll, as we read like tonight's passage, it's my hope that you'll kind of see that John wants his readers to know a three-part truth. So if you're like a note taker, this is the part where you take notes. Uh, there's a three-part truth uh, that's summed up in verse 19. It's this. Uh, it's one sentence, but it's a three-part truth. If we have placed our faith in Jesus, there's a few things that are, that are true. If we place our faith in Jesus, we know the truth about ourselves and about the world. So it's just one sentence, but it's three different ideas. If we place our faith in Jesus, we know the truth about ourselves and about the world. We know the truth about ourselves and about the world. I know I've repeated that a number of times, but um, that's because those are kind of where we're going to camp out tonight is in verse 19. But uh, So we have the context. I'm going to read 1 John 5, 13 through 21 together, uh, and then I want you to pay special attention to verse 19. Uh, so let's read that. Uh, this is 1 John. Uh, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, um, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, um, thank you for the opportunity to gather together. Obviously, uh, with threats of rain and COVID and limited space and all the other barriers, um, life does not look how uh, maybe we have wanted it to. Um, Lord, I confess even uh, in my own heart uh, being disappointed that I'm not with uh, all these people um, in person. Um, Lord, but you have given us this time uh, to look at your word, uh, to open it up, to mine it for its truth. And I pray that it would come alive to us and, and sink deeply into our hearts, uh, that you would make yourself more beautiful to us as we examine this letter uh, that John wrote and you breathed out. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's start with our first point. Remember, uh, if we've placed our faith in Jesus, we know the truth, right? So the other point, we know the truth about ourselves and we know the truth about the world. But first off, we know the truth. Uh, look with me again at verse 19. Look with me at verse 19. Uh, let's just take the first two words of that verse. We know, right? John is, uh, John starts, you know, or John uh, comes to this conclusion. He says, we know, we know a few different things. And it'd be easy to look like beyond that state, to look into like the content, right? He says, we know, okay, well, what do you know? We wanna skip right past those words but the reality is that we would miss something fundamentally true about what John is communicating. Four times in verses 13, 18, 19, and 20, John claims uh, that he knows a truth that is exclusive uh, and hopefully he shares that knowledge with his fellow readers, fellow Christians. What do I mean by exclusive? What is exclusive truth? Uh, what I mean is that John claims to know something uh, he is claiming that whatever that thing is, whatever that truth that he knows, all other claims that may contradict his truth are by default false, right? It means that um, whatever John is advocating, anything that advocates the opposite is not true. They can't exist simultaneously. John claims in verse 13, for instance, that faith in Jesus is the only means to eternal life against all other claims of eternal bliss, which means uh, other religions. Uh, it means materialism that, uh, but not just those, like it also means materialism that uh, promises us true happiness, but doesn't deliver things like um, financial prosperity, getting the right job, getting the right grades, uh, getting your chemistry homework done on time, uh, whatever it is, right? Like. Uh, sexual liberty, social acceptance, um, whatever things we can look to uh, to give us a sense of security, significance, and success. John is saying that those other claims, uh, that, that they will satisfy the human soul, that those cannot exist at the same time, right? That he knows an opposite truth. And either, either John is wrong or those other things are wrong. Uh, they can't both be true. Uh, John claims in verse 18 that sin is not the only, uh, uh, that not only is sin real, that you can actually disobey God, transgress his law, 
not live up to his standards, uh, but that like there is an internal allegiance that it's that is expressed in it, right? That like it's not just that you violated some sort of external standard, but that you have actually thrown off God's authority in your life and decided to go your own way, um, and so that uh, those who uh, are sinning and continue to sin are actually in rebellion against God. Um, and this is another exclusive truth claim that betrays um, our ultimate allegiance, that if we choose to pursue a life outside of the way that God has designed the world, then we are saying that uh, we do not want God's desires. And in the end, the scary thing is that God will say, thy will be done. Uh, to all of us who act out in rebellion, who tell God, I don't want any part of you, God will say, fair enough. Have, have it your way. Um, the hard part is, as John is claiming, that Jesus and God's rule is good, and therefore our sin uh, leads us to selfish pursuits. It leads to things like greed, vanity, jealousy, anger, disappointment. Uh, looking after those things that materialism tells us will be good, looking after those things that um, the world promises will make us whole, uh, those things do not satisfy. And, and John's making a truth claim that those two things can't exist at the same time. Either John is a liar or uh, these other idols are. Um, and then in verse 19 through 20, uh, John claims that there are those who know God and there are those who do not. Uh, this duality between like the Christian and the world is actually just going to be a theme that we revisit over and over and over again this fall. Um, as we gather together, you're going to see uh, that time and time again, John will continue to say uh, almost like contradictory truths. So he'll say things like, um, if a Christian is faithful and just to, or sorry, if a Christian confesses his sin, then then God will be faithful and just to forgive that sin. And then he'll say, um, uh, Christians, do not sin. It's like, I thought you just said that we could get forgiveness. What are you saying about now? And, and it might seem a little confusing until we remember that for John, uh, sin is rebellion against God, that sin is under the power of the world, and that you cannot be serving two masters. And that's going to be something that he comes back to over and over again, this exclusivity of Jesus, that he alone gets to be king. Um, that's why it, it might seem even a little, like, for some of us, as we read, like, verse, uh, like, 16, there's sins that lead to death, sins that don't lead to death. Um, like, he's delineating a little bit between, like, yes, Christians sometimes sin. There are sins that are high-handed rebellion that, like, basically says, I, like, God is no longer my God, and there are other sins that don't say that, and he's getting into the weeds a little bit there, but the, the point remains, John is saying there are, you can only live out one story at a time. Uh, there is one story that the Bible is telling us about the world, and there are competing narratives about who you are, what you are, where you are, why you're here, um, right here. In the middle of COVID, in your own homes, there are competing narratives about what brought you here tonight, uh, even online, um, and whether or not you should believe anything that I'm saying. And uh, 
the truth is that like what John is saying at the, at the outset and our culture would say the opposite, right? Our culture would say every truth claim is equally valid. That for you to say that like what I believe is wrong is the only thing that you cannot say. Like that is the one exclusive truth claim that our culture seems to accept is that there is no such thing as exclusive truth. Um, which is a truth claim, but it, but it flies. People tend to be okay with that. And we can buy into it if we're not careful. And uh, John, by saying we know over and over and over again, is making a point that uh, we do not have to believe. We do not have to wonder if what we believe is true, but that it actually is um, as a Christian. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, a 20th century theologian, uh, said this in reflecting on verse 19. The very definition of Christians in the New Testament is of people who know where they are, what they are, and what they have got. They are not men and women who are hovering in the dark. Um, in other words, there's a, there's a correct story about the world, and the Bible is telling it, about who God is, who we are. And if you place your faith in Jesus... Part of what you're doing there is acknowledging the truth. It's you uh, telling God that you see that, that you, it's living out uh, the truth that you are, uh, you are accepting. And so uh, I think one thing that helps me think through this a little bit in terms of like, what does it mean to make a truth claim or to, to believe one story? I would say, some people would say, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it with sincerity and all those things. But uh, whenever I was in, gosh, I think I was in about eighth grade, maybe I was seventh grade. Um, I was in English class with a girl named uh, Raven Sullivan, who wrote me a note. She sat right in front of me in my English class, and she was super cute. Not as cute as my wife, uh, but she was super cute. And I was like, you know, you know seventh grade crushes. You're like, I mean, like, if that person even looks at you, you're like, I think I'm levitating off the ground. Okay, and so uh, I'm sitting there in class, and she passes me a note, which I am like, the like for the record has never happened. I've this is like a crush from afar scenario. Okay, uh, and she passes me a note, and it says, I open it up, and she goes, I know someone who likes you, and I, and I kick my heels back a little bit, you know, and I coast. And I'm like, that's right, Raven Sullivan has a crush on yours truly, and she's too afraid to tell me, you know? Because that's the most obvious scenario, right? You know how you write notes and you're like, I know someone who likes you, and really it's you the whole time. And that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, I'm crushing this thing. The story that I'm living out of, right, is one in which uh, Raven Sullivan, who is way out of my league, uh, for some reason has turned around and passed me a note, and even though I've only said five words to her in my entire life, uh, she is now passing me notes and telling me that she likes me. Uh, that's what's happening. And I write back, oh, really? Well, I know someone who likes that person back. I, know, I think I know who you're talking about. And she says, is that, is that right? Well, she writes me another back and she says, is that right? Well, meet at the water fountain after school and that person wants to give you a kiss. Now, keep in mind, I had never kissed a girl in my life. So you can, admit, so you can bet that I was... Jazz. I mean, just like out off the moon, just like my life is peaking right now in seventh grade and it is only downhill from Raven Sullivan. 
uh, we're going to get married, so maybe it's just like a level plane. But like, you know, that's what I'm thinking in my head. And I show up to the water fountain after school, and uh, you can probably see this coming from a mile away, but Raven Sullivan was not at the water fountain. Uh, her friend Barbara was, and uh, Barbara, God bless her, she's a sweet person, and I would never say anything negative about her, but she was not Raven. And I was very saddened by this. Uh, and so I tell that story to make the point that, like, in that, in that little microcosm, right, I had a story that I was living out of, right? The things that had come before in my life had led me to believe, wrongly, that, that this was the thing that was happening to me. That, that, and I interpreted my current events based on, and I acted on, what I thought was the story I was living in, right? I had, a, I had an idea in my head of what was expected of me, how other people behaved with me, how I was supposed to interact with the world. And I misread that story. And that led me into hurting another person and also myself. Uh, nothing hurt but my pride. Uh, so like in, in a broader sense, what John is saying by we know, right? To say we know so many times is to make a claim about the story that we're living in, right? That you have got to make Plans, changes, decisions, interactions with relationships based on like the story that you're living out of. And there is, and it's important that you pick the right one. To pick the wrong one can hurt other people and yourself. Like that's what John's claiming. And that, and that we have to pick one, right? That one is true. Uh, but I haven't gotten into it. What is this story? Right? Like if it's so if it's so important that I know what that story is so that I can make the right decisions, what's the what's the story that 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 helps me uh, live my life? What's the story that John wants me to know? What's the truth that he's trying to hammer home in all these uh, different ways? Well, uh, let's look at the next uh, few words of verse 19. Uh, look look there with me. Um, if we have placed our faith in Jesus, we know the truth uh, about ourselves. So we know that we are from God. If you place your faith in Jesus, you know the truth about yourself, which is that you are from God. Um, another way of, of saying this, in fact, it happens in verse 18, is that you are reborn of God's spirit, right? The idea is that, uh, that you are from God or of God, meaning that God has birthed you again. Uh, we see this topic come up actually elsewhere in another uh, thing that John has written in the Gospel of John. In John 4, uh, sorry, John 3, he tells Nicodemus that you cannot even enter the kingdom of heaven until you've been born again. Nicodemus is like, what? You want me to like go back to my mom? I don't think it's going to work that way. I can't be born again. And Jesus is like, no, you have to be spiritually born again. That uh, the old you... Um, the old reality that was you is going to die and I'm going to resurrect him with the Holy Spirit and you will live a new life. Uh, that's the reality that is communicating to him. In Ephesians 2, we find out that that new life is not something that you find for yourself. It's not something that you earn. Uh, in fact, Paul is going to say this about um, being born again, about coming to faith. He says, It is by faith you have been saved and this is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, right? So we might think like, oh yeah, okay, so about ourselves, as long as I'm a good person and I love Jesus and I have enough faith and I'm 
doing all the right things. I read my Bible and I, cook, I show up to my quad, <laughs> uh, whatever it is, right? You might think, then I'm, then I'm good. Then I know the truth about myself that I am not of the world. I'm saved. Um, I have all these things that John's trying to tell me. And the reality is, and we'll see this in other ways with John, but the overwhelming arch of the story in Scripture is that God has acted unilaterally to love you and save you. That uh, the truth is, without him, to be born again means that you were dead. That God found you as a dead person and raised you back into life. Uh, that doesn't mean, I don't know if you guys have ever seen a dead person like come back to life. I personally haven't. It's because you can't do it. Uh, the, the analogy is meant to, to call to mind the fact that none of us can actually earn God's favor or love. And instead, God gives that to us in Jesus uh, and then asks us to love him with the spirit that he has placed in us, that he has given us the desire for him. It's, as Paul says, it is the gift of God, our faith. Um, and that means that the Bible story is essentially this, that, that uh, and, and it's what we're supposed to live out of. This is the story that, that if we see as our background and our foreground, we can make decisions based off of it. And is this, God is our creator. We rebelled against him, uh, particularly in the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, rebelled against his goodness, his authority, went their own way. Uh, and we, because we have sought our happiness apart from God, uh, it required Jesus, a savior, a sacrifice. And all of the Old Testament stories point to this idea that one day someone will come who will bring God's people back into relationship with him, that he will ultimately pay the price that no one else could. Um, and all these echoes, it's pointing toward, man, if only somebody could be the perfect sacrifice, if only somebody could be the perfect king. And Jesus comes on the scene, does that for us in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. That all the other truth claims, right? All the other things that I've mentioned tonight, all the other ways that we can believe, then I'll be happy, then I'll be loved, then I'll be accepted, then I'll be enough, I'll be significant. All those other truth claims are leading us astray. And that the truth that we should know about us as Christians is that we are born not of those things, but of God. Um, and this comes with good news and bad news, right? It comes with the, the good news, as I've already mentioned, that like, man, like God loves us so much that he became a human being and died on a cross and resurrected and is now king over all the universe. Uh, but it also comes with the bad news of, that means that like you were so bad that God had to die for your sins, that you genuinely, you, you look at other things that you, even though uh, you may have placed your faith in God, that you may be born of him, there's this tendency in all of us to look elsewhere, to uh, seek our own happiness apart from him. And John is saying, remember the truth. You know the truth as a Christian, that that is not you, right? That that's not the truest thing about you. Um, yeah, okay, so let's think. Uh, so we know the truth about God. Uh, we, we know the, the capital T truth. And then we know the truth about ourselves. And then John gives us one more truth. Uh, we know the truth 
about the world. John doesn't just communicate a story about ourselves. He also communicates a story about the world. Uh, look at the end of verse 19. Uh, the world lies in the power of the evil one. Um, there's two ways of understanding like what it means for the world to lie in the power of the evil one. One way is probably maybe the most apparent tonight and that things don't go like they should on earth, right? That there's a reality that like living here, nothing quite satisfies or lives up to the hype, lives up to the way that we think it ought to go. Um, we see things like COVID and uh, hunger and suffering and pain in the world. We see things like racism, uh, broken political systems where corrupt people uh, advance and uh, gain followings. Um, none of those other idols, none of those other things that we think, um, none of the other securities, none of the other safeties, none of the other things that uh, this world offers and we look around in, all of them are tainted, if only slightly, by sin. But it, they all lie under the power of Satan's lie, the original lie, that God isn't good and that he's holding out, holding out on us. So there's one way in which we see just everything kind of just broken. And the other way that we see it is that God is holding out on us uh, and that he's not really that good. That all those other things, maybe they could be good. Maybe if you worked hard enough, you could get straight A's and then life would be good. Or if you uh, got the right job, then you can make enough money, you'll be respected in your field, whatever it is, all these other things cry out and tell us uh, that we should follow them. And the reality is that uh, John is saying there are two kinds of people. There is the Christian who, at the end of the day, uh, his master is God. He is born of him, that he is, uh, he is about the family business, right? That if he is God's son, he loves and is about the work of the Father. And then there's another kind of person that is not that. Uh, there is the power of the evil one who uh, entices us away. Um, and he's going to keep bringing that up over and over and over again. And, and that's really the flip side of the coin. If we know the truth about ourselves, we also know the truth about those who are not following Jesus. We know the truth about what the world is moving toward and seeking after. Um, that's the other part of the story, right? Um, so what do we do with that? Well, um, there's a story in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, I'm a big fan, uh, if you don't know that. Uh, read through it for the first time, actually, like last summer. Um, I had not read it through it before, but I, I, made, a, I made an effort. Um, and they're great books, still would recommend, even if you're you know, a college kid. Uh, but there's this one scene uh, where this girl named Jill and this uh, boy named Eustace Scrub, they end up in Narnia, and they're separated, and Jill uh, has been in Narnia for some time now in this land, and she starts getting really, really thirsty. Uh, she starts to realize that like she's dehydrated and she needs to find water immediately. And she hears a stream, like it just you know from nowhere. She's like, "Oh man, is that where water is?" And she goes looking for the stream. And when she comes through a clearing and she sees the stream there in front of her she notices that uh, there's this big, huge lion that is standing at this stream. And uh, she freezes where she's at, and the lion looks at her, uh, and he says, come and drink. 
And Jill pauses for a second because obviously this is like a big scary lion. And she says, you know, uh, could you, you know, maybe go away for a bit? If you could just, if you just take a, you know, a little circle, circle back and I'll, I'll get the water and then you can go and then I'll come back. And uh, the lion doesn't go for it. The lion's name is Aslan. Uh, the lion doesn't go for it. He says, no, no thanks. Not going to do that. And she says, well, like, would you promise that you won't do anything to me if I come? You won't, like, mess with me or anything? And uh, the lion just looks at her and he says, I make no such promise. And Jill now is, you know, besides, she, she really, really wants a drink of water, but she doesn't know how to get it with this line in the way. And she says, well, you know what? I'll just go look for another stream. And the lion says maybe the most uh, heartbreaking thing of all, um, but also the most true thing of all, there is no other stream. Uh, C.S. Lewis tells this story because he wants us to see that um, this is our lives, that we are faced with a dilemma of, are we going to be born of God? Are we going to put our faith in Jesus, know our story, know who we are, and live out of that reality? Or, and the, and the thing is that that's scary because that means God has control of our lives. That means that we submit to him and, and we know him, right? That's why John makes all this stuff about not sinning and not practicing sinning and all these things is because when we do, we are demanding another allegiance. And he says, you've got to go to the stream that satisfies so uh, C.S. Lewis makes this point that like the scary part is going to the stream, but it's the only good and true option that we have because God will satisfy our desire, our thirst, our hunger. Uh, the things that we long for like significance and status and worth, God is up to that task in giving us those things. And he does that chiefly through his son Jesus who has died on the cross and loves us and defines who we are. Um, and the reality is that all other streams are the power of the evil one. All other rivals to God's supremacy in our life, to his definition of who we are and how we are to live, they are false promises, they are false idols, they are streams that do not satisfy. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for this time where we can uh, consider